How's it going, everybody? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times best-selling book, Genius Foods. On this episode of the show, I'm super excited to welcome to The Genius Life, Dr. William Davis, a board-certified cardiologist and the author of the internationally renowned Wheat Belly series of books. First published in 2011, Wheat Belly created major waves waking the world up to the potential dangers of modern wheat and gluten, changing the conversation around health and weight loss forever. Nearly a decade later, Dr. Davis's provocative claims about the dominant staple in our diets continues to inspire countless people around the world to lose the weed. So I'm excited to have this conversation with Dr. Davis. Um, he's a really, really smart guy. And we go deep into the the potential mechanisms of uh, heart disease and thyroid dysfunction and uh, the burgeoning obesity epidemic and so much more. This is a really fascinating chat and um, probably one of my favorites that I've had on The Genius Life to date. So buckle up and get ready to rock. But before we get to that, guys, Please support The Genius Life. I have a new book coming out on March 17th, and it would mean the world to me if you went over to GeniusLifeBook.com or Amazon or Barnes & Noble, wherever you like to get your books from, and pre-ordered my book. Unlike a lot of people in the health and wellness space, I don't have courses to sell. I don't sell supplements, and I rely on the sales of my books to stay afloat and to make a living. If you appreciate the content that I put out either on this podcast, which is obviously 100% free, or if you're a fan of my Instagram, which um, I try to post something every single day with the intent of helping you get healthier and feel better, then the $25 or whatever it costs is a small price to put to pay to show your support for what I'm doing. And it would truly make my heart sing if you uh, supported me by pre-ordering the book. Please head over to GeniusLifeBook.com um, or Amazon or Barnes & Noble and place that pre-order for The Genius Life. Pre-orders are so important and I would really appreciate having your help. Now before we get to my chat with Dr. William Davis, uh, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show. And that is Ned. Ned makes a line of super high quality CBD products. And in a time where CBD seems to be everywhere, from hand lotions to toothpastes to bath salts to even sparkling waters, don't waste your money on a product that's trying to be all things to all people. Instead, check out Ned, the CBD experts, and give a product like their 1500 milligram full spectrum hemp oil a try. Their hemp oils are extracted from the finest organically grown hemp flowers, grown with love on the western slope of Colorado by farmer Jonathan. And all of their products are loaded with a broad range of active cannabinoids, terpenes, flavonoids, and trichomes. What I value about their products is that they don't have any THC, so they're not gonna get you high. They don't add any synthetic ingredients or flavors, and they provide a wide range of doses. So whether you're going for their 1500 milligram tincture or their 750 milligram tincture or their 300 milligram tincture, you can dip your toe into the CBD pool at any level and be sure that you're getting a super high quality product. So if you'd like to give anything that they produce a try, head over to helloned.com and use promo code genius and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off of your first order. Helloned.com, promo code genius and tell them Max sent you. Now we're just seconds away, guys. If you'd like, please leave a rating and review for the show on iTunes. I notice all of the ratings and I read all of the reviews. Like this one from Weightlifter Danny. She wrote, Max is a skilled speaker with high energy and inflection, and this speaking skill translates to his interviews too. Guests give him great answers because they're matching his energetic, friendly nature. Not to mention, he asks the questions you're dying to hear. He has a ton of personality, he speaks to the listener like a friend, and his interviews are so good they hold my attention. As someone with a short attention span, that means a lot. Interview style podcasts tend to be boring. This one isn't. I recommend it. 
Weightlifter Danny, you are the bomb. And although it felt kind of funny reading such glowing compliments about myself out loud, I am just so elated that you are picking up what I'm putting down. And to all you guys who've taken a moment to leave that rating and review, I see you, I hear you, I appreciate you. Please pick up a copy of my new book, The Genius Life. I am gonna say it again and again and again. Um, don't fault me. I'm just so proud of this book. And by pre-ordering it, you are really supporting the podcast in a big way. And um, I promise you that it's gonna be worth it for you with all of the knowledge that you are going to glean from my new book. All right, well, without further ado, here we go. Here is Dr. William Davis, author of the Wheat Belly series of books in a deep dive on all things cardiovascular health. Let's rock. Dr. William Davis, thank you so much for being with me on The Genius Life. I'm excited to, uh, to have this conversation with you because you and I have known each other for quite a while. We've ran into each other at a bunch of um, academic conferences in the past, uh, but this is the first time getting you on, on The Genius Life, so thanks for taking the time. Oh, I'm, I'm glad to be back, Max. Well, so I mean, for listeners who might not be familiar with your work, and I'm imagining that's going to be a minority because you're the author of the Wheat Belly series of books, which is an international phenomenon, I guess you could call it. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a massive book, um, and it really set, uh, it, was, it was a groundbreaking book, I think, in many ways, because you kind of shifted the focus from, uh, you know, dietary fats, saturated fat, cholesterol, and things like that, which have been, I think, the focus of much of the conversation surrounding cardiovascular health for a very long time. And you were the first person to stand up and say, um, hey, guys, it actually might not be in the in the fat necessarily, but it might be it might be the bagel, not the egg on the bagel. <laughs> and so I, uh, I really appreciate your work. But for those who haven't heard of you, why don't we start with your with your background? Oh, sure, Max. Yeah, I practiced conventional cardiology, uh, what's called interventional cardiology for about 25 years. That's where you put in stents and do angioplasty and stop heart attacks, that sort of thing. Uh, my mom died of sudden cardiac death about four months after her successful two-vessel coronary angioplasty. So, so my mom died of the disease I took care of every day. I knew this, but it was a vivid and personal illustration to me just how ineffective conventional uh, cardiac care, heart, heart disease care was, where you try to manage this disease in, a, in the hospital, in a cath lab, in a procedure lab. So I started to look for uh, better ways to screen people. In, in other words, if you were not going to have a heart attack in five or 10 years, how do we predict that? Cholesterol, of course, is a ridiculous notion. It doesn't do anything of the sort. It does not predict heart attacks with any kind of uh, certainty. So what? how can you do it? The only device that does did this 25 years ago, and this remains true today even, are CT heart scans, very rapid heart scans to generate what's called a calcium score, using calcium as an independent, as an direct surrogate for the amount of atherosclerosis you have in your arteries. So we started scanning people left and right in Wisconsin, where I am. It was one of the first uh, devices in the Midwest. And lo and behold, we're finding it everywhere, Max, heart diseases everywhere. But what do you do about it? Well, back then, somebody would have a heart scan score of, say, 500, which is a high score. Zero is normal. And I'd say, okay, take aspirin, Lipitor, uh, low-fat diet, exercise, etc. He'd come back a year later, score would be 625 mm. or 650, about 25% increase. So we help publish the data. If you do nothing for the amount of plaque in your heart's arteries, it grows at a rate of 25% per year. If you take what's called 
optimal medical therapy, the best there is in modern healthcare. Aspirin, a beta blocker, a statin drug like Lipitor, low fat diet, exercise, heart scan score increases 25% per year. It has no impact at all on the progression of coronary plaque. So people are freaking out. I've got thousands of people freaking out on me. Wow. What do we do now? Well, the experts said, let them, they actually said this, Max, let them have their heart attacks Oof. or their other cardiovascular events and then worry about it. And accepting that there's a 50% death rate when you have a heart attack, which of course is an awful answer. I didn't accept that. I started to look for better answers and started doing other sorts of testing, looking at vitamin D blood levels, looking at advanced lipoprotein analyses, trying to pinpoint better causes than this ridiculous notion of cholesterol and low-fat diets. And that's what led all to all this. And we successfully began reducing people's heart scan scores, slowing it from 25% per year increase down to zero or dramatic regression, reversal of these scores. Those data are published. Uh, didn't get much attention, though, because uh, sadly, we had the situation in healthcare that the things that get attention typically are the things that make a lot of money. And now we're talking about turning off heart disease, a process that would actually slash profits and income and revenue for hospitals and my colleagues. Wow. You know, I don't I don't believe in conspiracies, but what you're talking about reminds me of an article I recently read. I believe it was in Stat News. It was about the cabal that's been surrounding Alzheimer's uh, research for the past few decades, that the focus has really been placed on this amyloid hypothesis. I mean, this is a little off topic, but uh, it's basically um, stunted uh, progress uh, in terms of other in terms of other avenues for why the disease uh, originates and progresses. And similarly, it's probably the fact that, you know, medical doctors have, I would say, very limited training when it comes to nutrition. And so the idea that dietary cholesterol or dietary fat could lead to these fatty deposits in the arteries or these cholesterol, uh, you know, based uh, deposits in the arteries. It makes logical sense, but it just doesn't add up when talking about the biochemistry uh, and the complexity with which our bodies operate. I agree. You know, I agree. I don't think there's a, a bunch of um, key decision makers sitting in a room having coffee and, and <laughs> planning to do away with uh, natural methods in order to maintain revenue flow. I think what it is, though, is willful ignorance, is my colleagues choose to focus on the things that pay the best and choose to essentially ignore or poo-poo the things like nutrition, vitamin D, manipulation of the microbiome, uh, et cetera, that don't really generate thousands of dollars of revenue. But in there, of course, is the things that you and I uh, mine for astoundingly powerful strategies for health. Yeah, couldn't agree more. So what do we currently then know about the cause of, of heart disease? Well, as, as you already know, the whole notion that total fat and saturated fat causes heart disease, of course, is based on very poor science uh, uh, from the 1950s and 1960s, as well as what are called observational data more recently. Observational data is about as good as no data at all. Hmm. That's the kind of ridiculous kind of garbage science that led to such things as Premarin, horse estrogens, being the number one most widely prescribed drug for about a decade to women. 
Uh, and of course, it was based on the observation that women who took Premarin had less endometrial cancer, less breast cancer, less cardiovascular disease. When the real clinical trials were performed, that is, I say, ma'am, I'm going to give you a pill. I don't know what it is. I'm not going to tell you what it is. We'll know in five years and we'll see how you do. When those kinds of blinded, randomized studies were performed, like the HERS trial and the Women's Health Initiative hmm. were performed, uh, the exact opposite was found. Premarin increased cardiovascular death, increased breast cancer, increased endometrial cancer, and accelerated dementia, by the way. Wow. So in other words, observational data is, is almost useless. Eight times out of 10, observational evidence is disproven in real clinical trials. Yet that is the basis for the low-fat diet. Yet the American Heart Association, that is the association that receives generous donations from Merck, Pfizer, GlaxoSmithKline, Medtronic, companies like that, mm -hmm. they continue to reiterate the need to cut fat and saturated fat, even though the evidence was poor at best for the last 40, 50 years. And the evidence from lipoproteins, metabolic studies is now overwhelming. Cholesterol does not cause heart disease. Dietary cholesterol has nothing to do with heart disease. Blood levels of cholesterol are very poor predictors of heart disease. Well, I think my colleagues accept that because they have this thing called the statin drug franchise that they purport erases all the effects of, of, of cholesterol. The, the reality is there are so many better methods to identify risk for heart disease and eradicate it. Because I've done this now thousands of times. You can take amount, an amount of coronary disease and you can readily and easily and very inexpensively stop its progression or even reverse it, reduce it. Maybe not to zero, but you can reduce it sufficient to not have heart attacks, not have chest pains, not require bypass or stent implantation. That's so fascinating. I just I want to take a step back. Can you describe um, why it is why nutrition research is so difficult to do? I mean, you, you you talked about observational research and the difference between observational research and experimental data, clinical trials. But from a from a from a research standpoint, I mean, it does seem that you know there there are studies that are showing that you know meat consumption, fat consumption is is correlated. Now, there's no causal link that's been established, but correlated to worse cardiovascular health. Could that be because, you know, for the past few decades, meat was something that was demonized, saturated fat is demonized. And so when you see people at the population level who consume lots of, you know, saturated fat, dietary cholesterol, they have other unhealthy aspects of their lifestyles, perhaps maybe their, you know, their diets in general are not good, independent of how much meat they're eating? I mean, what what else do you kind of see when you're doing these these sorts of observations? Yeah, the observational evidence, Max, as you know, is responsible for so many uh, uh, areas of misinformation in health. Nurses' health study, the physician's health study, those big studies generate a ton of garbage data that are is very misleading. At best, observational studies can be used to generate Hypotheses, not as you point out, not cause and effect. Rarely can they generate cause effect uh, associations, but they are also very useful for generating titillating headlines. Hmm. And that's why the media jumps all over this and confuses the public because one week they'll say eggs cause heart disease. Four weeks later, eggs don't cause heart disease. Red meat causes colon cancer. Red meat doesn't cause colon cancer because they're reporting garbage data. 
As you point out, it's very difficult. And the reason why uh, there's so much reliance on observational data is the real data. If I say, Mr. Lugavere, I want you to be on a specific diet. We're going to instruct you in this diet. You're going to do this for five years. It's very difficult to get living humans, free living humans, to follow a program like that and adhere to it. It has been done. And by the way, when those studies have been done, at least tried to get done, They've suggested that there is no association of fat or saturated fat intake with cardiovascular disease, uh, nor with cancers. So whenever the real studies are done, they're not very common, but they have been done. They have not shown any associations, yet the people are confused, including my colleagues, because they cite all the observational garbage evidence that suggests there could be an association. That makes total sense. So you were just about to talk about um, more accurate measures of heart disease risk. Uh, and you touched on LDL cholesterol, which is, I think when many people go to the doctor, the way that their doctors describe LDL, it's the bad cholesterol. And then you see HDL, which has this halo on it as being the good, <laughs> the good cholesterol. So can you kind of walk my listeners through the difference between HDL and LDL, um, why doctors are so, uh, well, I mean, you kind of touched on it already because statins can easily, easily modulate LDL. And so, you know, that's a, it's a big, it's a big business there, but maybe why doctors sort of have, um, you know, hung their hat on that as a marker for heart disease risk for so long. And what are the, what, you know, new research is suggesting are better indicators. So I call LDL cholesterol fictitious LDL cholesterol. And that's because if you look at your cholesterol panel, you'll see in parentheses, C-A-L-C, LDL cholesterol, parentheses, C-A-L-C, calculated. It's not even measured. And the calculation comes from a very old equation called the Friedewald calculation from the 1950s, 1960s, as a crude method of guesstimating the number of LDL particles in a fraction of blood. If you look at real measures, there are superior measures of, of these particles. If you look at real measures, such as a NMR lipoprotein analysis, which is widely available, by the way, I've been doing it for over 20 years, and you compare it to this fictitious LDL, you'll see there's almost no correlation at all. LDL cholesterol, as provided by cholesterol panels, is a virtually useless. What, imagine your speedometer in your car says 25 miles an hour, but you're really doing 70. Or vice versa, you're doing 70 and your speedometer says you're doing 25. Right. You would say well, this speedometer is completely useless. That's how good LDL cholesterol is. Yet it is the source of a multi-billion dollar business for big pharma. Based on studies that show that there's virtually no, almost no effect at all on reducing cardiovascular events. There is a small effect in select populations, but it's teensy-weensy. It's not the 36 to 55% reduction that the statin drug companies and some of my colleagues claim. And that part of that is statistical manipulation. So if, if Max and I conduct a trial and we do a placebo versus drug, and on the placebo, let's say over five years, there's two heart attacks for every 100 people. And in the in the drug group, there's one heart attack for every 100 people. We call that a 50% reduction in heart attack. What my what doctors hear, what the public hears, is for every 100 heart attacks, 50 will be prevented. That's not true. One will be prevented, even if we accept that the great majority of the data suggesting that was paid for by the drug industry. So it's it's like imagine I say imagine I'm trying to sell Max Lugovera a car. I say, hey Max, best car in America is made by Ford. 
And you say, how do you know that? And I said, well, there's a study comparing Ford to Toyota, Tesla, and, and GM. And you say, well, who paid for the study? And I say, well, Ford did. I'm not picking on Ford, but <laughs> you get the point. That if that were true, you'd say, well, well, that's ridiculous. That's called marketing. That's not real science. That's not real clinical uh, uh, data. But that is the basis for much of the statin drug franchise. And because of the ridiculous manipulation of data, of evidence, like the 50% reduction in heart attack, my colleagues have uh, swallowed that hook, line, and sinker and dispense statin drugs like candy now. But the real tragedy, Max, of the statin drug franchise is not the ridiculous overprescribing of statin drugs and the focus on cholesterol. It's the failure to focus on the real causes of heart disease that are very easy to identify and very easy to correct. Oh, man. Well, I want to get into that. Uh, and before we do, so, I mean, I think what we were starting to talk about was like the, the NNT, the number needed to treat. Um, and I don't, I don't know what the NNT for statins are off the top of my head, but what you're basically saying is so crucial. It's that, you know, you've got to give a statin to 100 people, essentially, to prevent one additional heart attack. And if statins didn't have any side effects, that wouldn't necessarily be a big deal, right? Like, Everybody has to wear a seatbelt to prevent, I don't know how many deaths from car accidents every year, but that's not a big deal because seatbelts have no side effects. But a statin, statins do have side effects and they can cause, you know, myopathy and things like that. Uh, the research on how statins affect the brain is equivocal, but I mean, I would not uh, trust my brain in the hands of a statin, um, just speaking personally. And so that's, that's a crucial point that you, uh, that you brought up. Yeah, good points, Max. So uh, once again, the observational evidence suggested some years back that statins prevented uh, cognitive impairment and dementia. Then the real trials were performed. They had no beneficial effect whatsoever on the progress. And why would it? Why, why would statins have any effect anyway? Um, now, the, the, so I, as, as I point out, the, the, the tragedy here is that the real causes of heart disease are easy to identify, but you can't do it from a standard cholesterol panel. Though you can tell something from the triglyceride level. That is, the, the, there's four values in a standard cholesterol panel. The LDL cholesterol is ridiculous. Total cholesterol is a completely useless number. But actually, the HDL and the triglycerides, the two numbers most commonly ignored, are can be helpful hmm. because triglycerides tell us the status of your diet and how much inflammation and insulin resistance you have. And so that's helpful. But a real much better insight is, do, is to obtain a, a test called uh, lipoproteins. The preferred method I use was NMR, nuclear magnetic resonance. Sounds fancy. It's very easy. It's like $80. It's only a few dollars more than cholesterol testing. But the one truly helpful number it gives you is the number of small LDL particles and what percentage they are of total LDL particles. So a typical person with coronary disease, somebody who had two stents or survived a heart attack or has a heart scan score of 1,000, typical uh, lipoprotein panel would show total LDL particle number of, say, 2,400 nanomoles per liter, particle count per volume. Of that 2,400, 1,900 or something like that will be small LDL. That's so common. 99% of the time, somebody with coronary disease will have that pattern. Well, how do you get small LDL particles? There's only two ways, two foods, grains and sugars. Wow. <laughs> not fats, not bacon, <laughs> not red meat, uh, only grains and sugars. So that's why years ago I, I asked patients to remove all grains and sugars 
and small LDL would drop from 1900 to zero or something close to that LDL particle number would drop from 2400 to say 700, which is an LDL cholesterol equivalent of about 70. In other words, you have profound reductions in these measures and you have dramatic control over growth of coronary plaque. And then we added other issues, but assessing vitamin D blood levels, 25 hydroxy vitamin D, assessing thyroid. We have this silent epidemic max of thyroid dysfunction, part of its iodine deficiency, part of its exposure to disruptive chemicals like triclosan and hand sanitizer and uh, perfluoroctanoic acid residues that are persistent from Teflon and a whole bunch of others. These are all disrupting thyroid. And now we have a, a third of the U.S. population now has thyroid disease, thyroid dysfunction in some form. Many don't know it, by the way. And that's a flagrant risk for coronary disease. We correct magnesium and track RBC magnesium blood levels. We attract uh, the stages of the microbiome and correct disruptions. And, and of course, supplement omega-3 fatty acids, fish oil. And just that little menu of things, lipoprotein assessment, and with the resultant diet to, to manage it, vitamin D restoration, magnesium, EPA, DHA from fish oil, and efforts to cultivate healthy microbiome. And the majority of people can stop their heart scan score from progressing, even obtain reversal. People who've had stents or bypass surgery, their disease comes to a halt. I used to have hospital administrators come to me. They say, hey, where, where are you taking your patients nowadays? And I say, here. And they say, no, 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 very funny. Where are you taking your patients now? Because you, you don't hospitalize hardly anybody. I said, I, I prevent heart disease. People don't have angina. They don't have heart attacks. They don't have heart failure. They don't have need for bi They said, they laughed. They thought I was joking. I said, I'm not joking. I'm serious. They refused to believe that this was happening. Where I went from six, seven, eight, nine, ten 10 procedures a day to zero procedures a day in high-risk populations, people who've had bypass, survived sudden cardiac death, had four stents, et cetera. Heart disease comes to a grinding halt. But heart disease is the number one moneymaker for hospitals. 50% of all hospital revenue comes from cardiovascular disease. And of course, my colleagues do well also. When you talk about turning off the faucet of revenues, no one wants to hear it. But that's what we're doing. And it's, it's Max, it's just, it's, it's stupid easy to do. Yeah, I mean, it makes total sense. How? What is the? So, what is the mechanism by which grains and sugar can cr cause the influx of these small, dense particles that, that you so mentioned? So, there's a number of ways, but the the primary driver is there's a carbohydrate in grains called amylopectin A, and amylopectin A is absorbed and digested by the liver and converted to triglycerides. Hmm. This is a process only recently described called de novo lipogenesis. All that means is the liver's conversion of carbohydrates to triglycerides. Triglycerides are fats. Now, some of those triglycerides make their way onto the bloodstream. That's why people with heart disease and metabolic distortions like diabetes often have higher triglycerides. And by high triglycerides, I mean anything above 60 milligrams per deciliter. Not the 150 often quoted. That's ridiculous. It's 60 uh, or higher, and ideal is 60 or less. So some of those triglycerides liver creates make, makes it out into the bloodstream. Some stay, by the way, in the liver for unclear reasons and plug up the liver, that's fatty liver. So fatty liver is not caused by fat, it's caused by carbohydrates such as the amylopectin A of grains. Hmm. 
Now, the amylopectin A of grains that does this, when those triglycerides get out into the bloodstream, they actually occur in the bloodstream of something called VLDL particles, very low density lipoprotein particles. So if you're doing lipoprotein analysis, not just cholesterol testing, you'd see an explosion of VLDL particles, as well as the higher triglycerides above 60. And what v, I call VLDL the lipoprotein life of the party. The reason for that is it loves to interact with LDL particles. Not only does VLDL particles themselves cause heart disease, accumulation of coronary atherosclerosis, VLDL also interacts in the bloodstream with LDL particles and converts them via somewhat complex mechanism to small LDL particles. And small LDL particles are very unique. They're much more adherent to the arterial wall. Once they gain entry, they're much more prone to cause oxidative changes and inflammatory changes. They last five to seven days in the bloodstream rather than the 24 hours of large LDL particles caused by fat consumption. So in other words, the small LDL particle is perfectly crafted to cause heart disease, but only two kinds of foods cause it, grains and sugars. So when you cut fat, and tell somebody to eat more healthy whole grains, you've put them on a heart disease-causing diet that will result in an explosion in small LDL particles, a rise in triglycerides, a rise in VLDL particles, a rise in blood sugar, increase in fatty lipids. In other words, the standard conventional answer to heart disease prevention causes an entire menu of destructive health effects. And as you know, all you and I have to do is look around us to see what conventional dietary advice worsened, of course, by predatory practices of big food and the ignorance of my colleagues has, has resulted in. All this advice has not resulted in a reduction in heart disease. If anything, it's caused a sustained uh, presence of heart disease, maybe even an increase in heart disease. Wow. So what's the difference then between um, like postprandial hypertriglyceridemia, which basically, and correct me if my, if my vernacular wrong is wrong, I'm not a medical doctor, but you know, if you eat fat, you'll see an increase in triglycerides in your blood right after eating the, eating the fat, and then it, it goes down. But grains and sugar basically causes this elevation of your baseline uh, triglycerides. It, it, it causes an elevation of your fasting tri triglycerides, which is essentially what we want to avoid. Is that, is that an accurate statement? Yeah, I'm, I'm very impressed you're, <laughs> you're concerned about that issue. But let's, let's say we eat a, mi a meal of mixed composition, fat and carbohydrate and proteins, of course. In the first few hours, triglycerides go up due to fat absorption. That's primarily because of a rise in something called chylomicrons, which are nothing more than the body's way of packaging fats in the bloodstream. So there's an early rise in triglycerides and chylomicrons, and they can cause heart disease. What wasn't appreciated until last several years is that if you wait longer, four, six, eight hours, there's a second spike in triglycerides, in VLDL particles. And the delay is because it takes the liver that long to convert the carbohydrates to VLDL particles. So there's kind of a double hump. Hmm. But the second hump from triglycerides, uh, from carbohydrates, in the majority of people is much larger than the initial hump from fat absorption. And so that was not appreciated because in order to see that, you have to actually monitor someone's blood for many hours, up to 8 to 12 hours after they eat a meal. But that is by far the dominant effect. The rise in VLDL particles uh, and triglycerides many hours after consumption of carbohydrates. Uh, and it's so if you cut fat, 
triglycerides, fasting triglycerides go up. If you cut carbohydrates, fasting triglycerides plummet. You know, personally, my uh, highest triglyceride level, uh, which about 25 years ago, and I didn't know any better, I was on a super low-fat vegetarian diet, and my triglycerides were 390. Wow. Now they're 44. Uh, nothing, by the way. So nothing except things like fish oil and uh, vitamin D, et cetera. And I've done this now thousands of times. You can reduce triglycerides dramatically, even from the thousands, by doing this, not by cutting fat. So cutting fat has a small effect in reducing fasting triglycerides, or it makes it go up. Cutting carbohydrates uh, causes triglyceride levels to plummet. Wow. Now, when it comes to the different types of fats, um, it's my understanding that the way that saturated fat can raise levels of lipoproteins in the blood is that saturated fat can actually reduce the liver's um, capacity to recycle these lipoproteins. So like VLDL gets shipped out from the liver. Over time, it starts to shrink, right? And it becomes like the LDL particle. And what we want to avoid is that small, dense LDL particle. And so it's my it's my understanding that saturated fat basically reduces the amount of LDL receptors on the liver that will would basically suck in those LDL particles to recycle them before they get too small and dense, essentially. So what's your take on the fat composition of one's diet as it relates to having healthy, uh, you know, uh, lipids? When, when you monitor lipoproteins, not cholesterol values, you'll see something that it's carbohydrate that initiate the formation of small LDL, hmm. but saturated fat can exaggerate that effect. So let's say somebody ate some carbohydrates and caused their liver to create, let's just pretend, 1,800 nanomoles per liter, particle count per volume, small LDL particles. If we throw saturated fat into the mix, that number can go up to, say, 2,400. But if we take the carbohydrates out the saturated fat no longer provokes a rise in the small LDL particle. Hmm. And you can have zero small LDL particle while indulging in plenty of saturated fat. So it's, it, it, an easy way to think about it is carbohydrates initiate, saturated fats exaggerate. But if there's no initiation in the first place, you won't have small LDL particles to exaggerate. And I've done this now countless times. You can get dramatically reduced real measures like LDL particle number. It sounds like LDL cholesterol, but it's a very, very different measure. But you'll see, you know, when you when you do testing like NMR, and by the way, your listeners can get this very readily. They can even get it in most states, not New York, sadly, without the doctor's order. You can get it on your own. And it's just a few dollars. And uh, you'll see readily that these abnormalities are not caused by a lack of a statin drug or fat consumption. It's caused by grains and sugars. Uh, it is astounding the amount of – now, put on top of that basic efforts to reverse insulin resistance. You know, we have a world where uh, probably three-quarters of the population has insulin resistance in some form. It may be 90 percent soon. It could be expressed as type 2 diabetes. It could be expressed as pre-diabetes. It could be expressed as visceral fat or a higher blood sugar, non-diabetic. But these are all forms and degrees of insulin resistance. So if you take steps to reverse insulin resistance, the diet's a big, big, big start. But also vitamin D and fish oil and magnesium and efforts to cultivate bowel flora, you further ratchet back insulin resistance. And that's where you have even more profound control over um, uh, such things as small LDL particles, fatty liver, um, coronary disease, uh, type 2 diabetes, et cetera. Profound control comes uh, from just this 
simple menu of strategies. Wow. When you were talking about the how saturated fat could potentially exacerbate, um, you know, the small, dense LDL particles or the dyslipidemia, really, it just got me thinking about how what a what a ticking time bomb the standard American diet is for people, which is high in both refined carbs and sugar and lots of saturated fat. So it really is like the worst diet in terms of cardiovascular health. You know, Max, in a way, I'm I'm grateful that the USDA, the American Heart Association, Academy of Nutrition, Dietetic, the, sorry, got it so colossally wrong. I, I, I wish they didn't get it wrong. But you know what? In some ways, I'm grateful because it showed us how awful <laughs> the results were when you did what they said to do, which I did personally and had patients doing for years years ago. Uh, but it, it's horrifying to see what happens. I personally became a type two uh, on a very ultra strict, low fat vegetarian diet, jogging three to five miles a day. I personally became a type two diabetic with triglycerides of 390, HDL cholesterol 27, uh, about 1800 nanomoles per liter of small LDL particles, high blood pressure, etc. I, I went off that silly diet and everything reversed, but it was a vivid illustration in me and many other people and borne out by clinical evidence that the conventional effort to cut fat, cut saturated fat is a deplorable, horrible, miserable failure. Couldn't agree more. Um, you talked about uh, cultivating uh, gut flora, which I think is so important. And it got me thinking about, I've been sort of uh, interested lately in the role of, um, of fiber in terms of helping to, I guess, normalize lipids in the blood and specifically uh, the research that I've seen on psyllium husk. Do you ever use that in your practice, psyllium husk, to help, uh, you know, if you see, well, if, if you, is there ever an instance where you'll see LDL levels so high that you feel the need to, um, because if, you know, we were talking about the, the, the lack of a relationship um, or, or a concrete relationship. So at what point do you feel the need to intervene? And if you do intervene, do you ever use uh, psyllium husk because it's because of its ability to trap these bile acids, um, which I think is a really cool mechanism. And I always like to bring it up whenever whenever I have the opportunity. Yeah, I think uh, psyllium is, is useful as are other prebiotic fibers, that is fibers that are consumed by bacteria. So one of the mechanisms that bacteria use is they produce an enzyme called bile salt hydrolase. Hmm. And all that does is it causes reduction in cholesterol, dietary cholesterol absorption. And it drops LDL cholesterol. If you're tracking LDL cholesterol, it drops LDL cholesterol, total cholesterol, and LDL particle number, the real value. I will, I will tell you my growing experience in manipulating the microbiome <clears throat> is yielding astounding effects. Mm. We are seeing all kinds of things that I never expect to see. And I was skeptical. You know, I, I'm a cardiologist. I'm not a gastroenterologist. I'm not a microbiologist. But we're seeing a One of the most exciting things we're seeing beyond giving people lots of prebiotic fibers, as you point out, there are all these metabolic benefits of doing so by way of such things as butyrate when you feed your bacteria uh, prebiotic fibers, whether it's psyllium seed or a green unripe uh, banana or a raw white potato or inulin powder or um, – uh, root vegetables, you feed the bacteria these prebiotic fibers, which in turn convert them to such things as butyrate, that in turn yields astounding, very impressive health benefits like 
reductions in insulin resistance, reductions in triglycerides, reversal of fatty liver, changes in your dream content, changes, changes extension of REM sleep, wow. um, uh, makes you happier, uh, all these wonderful effects. One of the most exciting uh, projects we've been working on, though, is the cultivation of Lactobacillus roteri, hmm. R-E-U-T-E-R-I. So there are two strains of Lactobacillus roteri that most modern people have lost, probably from chlorinated water and antibiotics and herbicide, pesticide residues in food, et cetera. So most people had it 60, 70 years ago. We've lost it. Most people have lost it now. And this is responsible. This back, these bacterial strains are responsible for causing your hypothalamus to release the hormone oxytocin. When you consume this organism, which we do, by the way, by making it yogurt, we make a yogurt as a bacterial fermentation, bacterial count amplifying system. It's not about yogurt. It's about amplifying bacterial counts of this uh, specific species and strain. You consume this as a half cup of yogurt, which, by the way, is rich and delicious. Hmm. And ladies start to lose their wrinkles within four weeks. Dermal collagen explodes Healing is dramatically accelerated. Bone density is preserved. We regain lost muscle mass and strength that we lose as we age. There's an increase in libido. There's a deepening of sleep. There's an extension of REM sleep. There's deepening, further deepening of sleep. And because we're boosting oxytocin, the hormone of love and connectedness, people say, you know, um, I better understand my spouse now or my children. I go up to strangers and I talk to them. I want to. I want to meet them. I want to talk. There's a. There's an. A, a, an explosion. Empathy. And desire for connectedness. So Magnus made me wonder. You know, you we all live in a time where there's an explosion, social isolation, record suicide rates, other so unhealthy social phenomena, worrisome social phenomena, is at least part of that due to the loss of lactobacillus roteri and thereby lower oxytocin levels. Because we're seeing a lot of this reverse now. By the way, the holidays just passed, and people tell me how what how wonderful their holidays were when they fed their families lactobacillus roteri yogurt. So it's it's but it's an example of the profound influence of the microbiome. This is just one example of the profound influence we have both individually as well as socially by restoring the microbiome. It's so fascinating that this, this whole new world of psychobiotics. In fact, because of uh, El Rudieri's, um influence on oxytocin, I feel like I, I, I definitely wrote about it in Genius Foods and some uh, clinical trials now that are using the strain as a means of reducing symptoms in autism spectrum disorder. Yes, that's right, uh, included as well as intranasal oxytocin and also in marriage counseling. <laughs> and it apparently helps uh, partners see the, uh, the other side a little better. Um, and this is just one example, though. Now, we're using it as yogurt only because yogurt is a nice, easy way for people to have their own do-it-yourself-at-home bacterial amplification system. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be dairy, by the way. You can use non-dairy also. Um, and But we, we can do... We can do such things as amplify counts of lactobacillus gasseri, BNR17. By the way, we're very attentive to strain specificity because you must pay attention to strains, even though most commercial probiotics don't even specify strains, but you must pay attention to strains because strains can vary. For example, I have E. coli in my gut. You have E. coli. Your listeners have E. coli. But what if you ate lettuce tainted with E. coli from cow manure? You could die of kidney failure and sepsis. 
same species, different strains. So strain specificity can be literally a life and death difference. So we pay attention to strain. So the Reuteri effect only comes that we are aware of from two strains, DSM-17938 and ATCC PJ-6475. No one has to remember that. It's in my Wheat Belly blog. <laughs> uh, guy, uh, step-by-step guide to making El Reuteri yogurt tells you how to where to get these strains, how to make it. Um, um, so you must be attentive to strain. So we're making uh, lactobacillus gasseri yogurt, BNR17, and you lose about an inch off your waistline for people who need to uh, in about three months. In other words, it has a dramatic effect on insulin resistance and waist circumference. That's just in three months, of course. We're, we're on the cusp of having these astoundingly powerful tools in the microbiome. Acromancia is going to be coming out sometime soon. And that's going to be that's, – that's a bacteria, an unusual one, by the way <clears> – <throat> That reduces blood sugar and insulin on a par or better than the majority of diabetes drugs, commercial diabetes drugs. So I love this. We're being afforded these astoundingly powerful tools in the world of the microbiome that make pharmaceuticals look like child's play. That's amazing. I mean – there was that study a couple of years ago where, um, and I, I can't, I don't think I can recall the details of it, but I know that they gave uh, people with different microbiomes the same food. I think it was either like a banana or some white bread or something like that. And even though it was the same bolus of carbohydrate, the same glycemic index, they saw radically different glycemic effects in the patients. And it was solely uh, a function of the fact that they had different um microbiomes, I believe. I think that that was the, that was the conclusion of the study, but very, very interesting that we can treat all kinds of things through the, through the, through the lens of the gut. Yeah, there's still plenty more to learn. I mean, we really just scratch the surface, but it, it, we're, we're starting to get hold of some very, very powerful strategies like the Reuteri yogurt, like the Gasseri, uh, et cetera. And this, I, I think it, it's coming out at a, uh, a breakneck pace Every day, every week, every month goes by, there's some astounding new impressive discovery that empowers you and me. And it's stuff that has nothing to do with pharmaceuticals, nor the doctor, nor the healthcare system. You can do these things on your own. I love it. It's so empowering. Um, so just going back to saturated fat, I mean, we have the recommendation, avoid avoid grains, avoid uh, sugar. But when it comes to just, you know, specificity over the, the recommendation of, you know, how much saturated fat we should we should be having in our diets, what kind of recommendations do you make? I mean, should we be are you you know, like when you see people putting coconut oil in their smoothies and butter in their coffee and all kinds of things like that, is that sort of a, uh, you know, a, is that something that you would de- determine on a case by case basis, looking at genes, for example, or um, what's your what's your stance on saturated fat? You know, Max, what I, what I see in the context of grain and sugar elimination. And by the way, despite that, we just had the holidays. Uh, I had pumpkin pie. I had cranberry sauce. I had biscuits and gravy. I had gravy on my turkey. In other words, this is not eat cardboard and lettuce. It's have it's <laughs> it's have wonderful, delicious, rich foods. We recreate something like, say, pumpkin pie. We're not going to use sugar. We're not going to use wheat flour in the crust or cornstarch to thicken it. We're going to use Pumpkin, of course, we'll use a benign non-caloric sweetener like stevia or rebiana or allulose or monk fruit. Uh, we won't use wheat flour. We use ground pecans or ground walnuts or ground almonds. And you can make delicious pies, for instance, or gravies, etc. So this is not a life of deprivation. 
But in the context of grain and sugar elimination and those modest efforts to normalize insulin resistance, you see that saturated fat and total fat intake has nothing to do with metabolic distortions. It will if you continue to eat grains and sugars. In that situation, fats are amplifiers of the distortions initiated by carbohydrates and sugars. But if you take the carbohydrates and sugar, the initiating factors, you'll find that nothing bad happens with consumption of uh, total fat and saturated fat. And the majority of people, as you know, there are genetic variants where there are exaggerated effects like ApoE4 and some other factors. But the majority of people have no. So I tell people, when you buy pork chops, buy the kind with fat on it and don't trim it off. Eat it. If you have a steak, buy a ribeye or other fatty cut. Eat the fat. If you buy ground meat, never buy lean. Buy full fat. Add butter. Add coconut oil. Never restrict fat. Never count, never count calories. That's become eminently clear. People who count calories not only are miserable and angry, they also get gallstones. That's become very clear. There have been now several studies where people were tracked either on low-calorie, calorie restrictions, or low-fat diets at day zero, 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, by serial ultrasounds of the gallbladder. And people who start with no gallstones develop gallstones by cutting calories, cutting fat. Astounding proportion, Max. As many as 65% of people doing this will develop gallstones because what they're doing when you cut calories and or fat is you've left your gallbladder inactive and it's not spitting out its bile and the bile begins to stagnate and crystallize. And that's how you form stones. And so cutting calories, cutting fat is not only a metabolic disaster, it's also a gallstone disaster. And the majority of these people end up with gallbladder surgery, which I, I think pretty good evidence that cutting fat, cutting calories is a loser's game. Don't do it. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> but you, I mean, you, you can be on a reduced calorie diet and still have it be a, a high fat diet. Can you not? I mean, for people that are that are overweight, isn't part of the, the equation for weight loss that you've got to you know, be burning more calories than you're, than you're intaking every day? No, you know, I've encouraged people to eat more fat because of the satiating. The paradox with fat intake is the more fat you eat, the less food you eat hmm. because of its satiating effect. And so I've never, uh, and, and we know that people who cut calories, it's not quite clear if you cut um, calories, but maintain fat intake. It's not quite clear what that has, what association there is with gallstones in that situation. But I suspect there still is some propensity towards gallstone formation, but no one's looked at that. So we don't really know. But uh, uh, as a practical matter, I've never had anybody uh, uh, restrict calories. Now, that all said, um, when you remove grains, one of the th things you do is you remove what's called the gliadin protein. You may, you may remember this. There's a protein called gliadin in wheat and related proteins in other grains, cecalin and rye, hordein and barley, uh, avenin and oats, uh, uh, zein and corn. These proteins are very poorly digested by humans because grains are all seeds of grasses. Humans just don't have the digestive enzymes to, to, to digest grasses or any component of them. So when we consume seeds of grasses, grains, 
One of the proteins is gliadin, and it's related proteins, and you can't break it down into single amino acids like other proteins. If you ate a pork chop or, or eggs, you break it down into single amino acids. When you eat the gliadin protein of wheat, you break it down into, at best, four or five amino acid long peptides. Hmm. But these peptides are very unique. They're small enough to penetrate into the human brain and bind to the opiate receptors, where they have a variety of peculiar effects, but among which is appetite stimulation. So most people are prompted to consume about an average 400 to 800 more calories per day when they when grains are part of their diet. And people will tell you this. They say things like, you know, I had a whole plate of pasta. I was filled to bursting. Yet I was still hungry. I don't know why. I'm still hungry. Or I ate uh, a bowl of pasta at 6 p.m. I was hungry at 8 p.m. I had to have a snack. There's this relentless uh, uh, appetite that develops from the gliadin-derived opioid peptides. Remove that, even though nobody's telling people to cut calories, you'll see that calorie intake drops on average about 400 to 800 calories per day, sometimes as much as 1,500 calories per day, even though we're not saying cut calories. It's a natural rationing down of hunger. And by the way, hunger also feels very different. It's a soft reminder to eat. So many of us will eat, for instance, breakfast, say, at 7 a.m. Let's say just say three eggs and some sausage or whatever. And you'll find it three, it's 3 or 4 p.m. before you even think about food again. I, I forgot how many times, Mask, I forgot to eat dinner. Just forgot. I was working. I forgot to eat dinner. So uh, the whole – and by the way, the Reuteri yogurt, so grain elimination, thereby the gliadin-derived opioid peptides – Profound reduction in appetite. You can even take it further, the so-called anorexigenic effect of uh, roideri and oxytocin, and you're given absolutely profound control over appetite. It doesn't mean that food can't still taste wonderful. It does. But you have no temptation whatsoever. This is the kind of control you have. You can walk right past the all-you-can-eat food buffet. You can walk right past all the pies and cakes at, uh, at work. You can walk past the bakery window and not give it a second thought, have no interest whatsoever. That's the kind of profound control people are capable of having. I love that. And I've seen that play out in my own life. I mean, when I've, you know, it, it, at points in my life when I was eating bread, if the, when the bread basket were to arrive, if I were to have that first bite, I wouldn't be able to, I wouldn't be able to pump the brakes. I would just <laughs> go through the entire bread basket. And so I, I really appreciate what you're saying. It's not necessarily that calories don't matter, but it's like you want to set your life up in a way where you don't have to be, you know, beholden to this calorie ball and chain, you know, which is, I think, You've got to be conscious of if you're if you're bu building your diet on ultra processed foods that are calorie dense to the point where your body doesn't know what you're eating, you know, and it's just short circuiting your brain's reward centers and, and tapping into all those, you know, or, or short circuiting all those satiety, you know, checkpoints in your brain. But if you're when you avoid these foods, these hyper palatable, you know, grain foods, you don't have to think about calories. And who wants to think about calories at the end of the day? Yeah, it's misery. You know, we also have the evidence that came from, of all things, the biggest loser TV show. So your listeners may remember this show uh, put these poor people through misery by restricting calories, 1,200 to 1,400 calories per day, despite this extreme vigorous exercise routine, many hours a day. So these people are starving all day and being put through torture, uh, but it worked. They lost 30, 50, 70, 130 pounds. They left the show, the majority of people maintained their caloric restriction and at least a moderate exercise program and regained all that weight. So their metabolic rates were measured formally 
and their metabolic rates had dropped 25%. So in other words, when you cut calories as they did, maintain long-term caloric restriction, your metabolic rate compensates because your body thinks you're starving, and then you regain all the weight to extreme obese levels, even though you're, you've cut calories and maintain an exercise program. So cutting calories not only reduces metabolic rate and thereby ensures long-term weight regain, it also leads to gallstone formation. So, you know, it's taken all these years to figure out just how awful um, some of these dietary restrictions are. Yeah, that's uh, very unfortunate. Um, let's uh, shift gears a little bit and talk about um, the cholesterol that we get in our food. So, I mean, dietary cholesterol has largely been exonerated. It's no longer a nutrient of concern, according to the FDA, which is great. And I, you know, love my eggs. I call them a genius food. Um, what I mean, are there are there some people still that need to be concerned about dietary cholesterol? I think you've referred to them as hyperabsorbers. You know, there's there's some uncertainties here. There are some genetic variants like people with ApoE4, it's a, it's a uh, fairly, as you know, very uh, a hot topic in the world of dementia. Mm -hmm. But it also causes hyperabsorption of fat. And there, it's not quite clear what these people should do. They're often told, by the way, to cut their fat, which is horrible advice, because when someone with ApoE4 cuts their fat, they are just as prone to type 2 diabetes and other metabolic distortions. And what you do in ApoE4 people when you cut your fat is you cause an explosion in small LDL particles and other metabolic disasters. So cutting fat in ApoE4 is a, is a, is a disastrous situation. Hmm. But it's not quite clear what ApoE4 people really should do that yields real improvement. I think that Bredesen's argument, uh, you know, the end of Alzheimer's uh, doc in mm -hmm. California, Mm -hmm. He's, he, of course, published very good data to show us that ApoE4 is, in effect, a huge magnifier of the inflammasome of all the many, many hundreds of inflammatory mediators in the body. That's the essence of ApoE4. So I think concentrating on dietary fat, et cetera, in ApoE4 is, is really kind of a red uh, herring. It's focusing on the wrong thing. It's really the inflammatory, the inflammasome that really requires attention in ApoE4. So, but it's not quite clear what we should do in ApoE4 diet-wise. But one thing is clear, they should not cut their fat. So I don't have a complete answer for you. Uh, likewise, hypercholesterolemia uh, people, familial hypercholesterolemia people, it's not quite clear what the ideal situation there is, though I would say, once again, cutting fat, once again, when, you cut, when anybody cuts fat, whether it's a regular person, a person with lipoprotein A, a person with ApoE4, a person with familial hypercholesterolemia, regardless, whenever somebody cuts fat, you convert large LDL particles to small LDL particles and make the situation worse. And as you point out, you exaggerate postprandial hyperlipidemias after eating uh, um, VLDL distortions. You raise insulin resistance. You raise blood sugar. You raise hemoglobin A1C. You drop HDL. You raise blood pressure. In other words, even if you're ApoE4 or have those other patterns, you're still just as prone to all these horrible distortions when you cut fat. So one thing is clear, nobody should be cutting fat, but it's not entirely clear how much advantage you gain by some other kind of dietary manipulation in those genetic variants. Right. Thank you for talking about the ApoE4 allele. As you know, that's a big uh you know, interest area for me. I've written about it extensively, and you mm -hmm. know, I think it's uh, it's it's crucially important. And you know, pre preventing dementia is my 
one of my primary passions. So um, yeah. thanks for touching on that. You mentioned bl- blood pressure, um, and we don't have that much time left, but I do want to talk about, uh, you know, healthy ways of maintaining uh, or, or, you know, natural ways of maintaining a healthy blood pressure, because I think something that the research is showing more and more um, by the day is how important um, healthy blood pressure is for our brain health. I'm, I'm sure you've seen the results of the recent uh, Sprint Mind trial where they found that lowering um, older adult patients' uh, blood pressure um, below what the usual target would be of a systolic blood pressure of 140 um, millimeters of, uh, of, of mercury to an even lower 120 systolic um, blood pressure, they found that that was significantly able to prevent uh, mild cognitive impairment or MCI, which is, uh, mm-hmm. which is amazing. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I think a lot of people are on blood pressure medication and things like that. But uh, what are some ways that we can in our in our in our normal lives, like, you know, maintain a healthier uh, blood blood pressure? You know, Max, I can tell you that in my world where we eliminate wheat and grains and sugars, and we take fish oil at a therapeutic dose, 3,000 milligrams or more, EPA and DHA. We take magnesium, preferably, by the way, is something called magnesium water. Recipes are in all my books, on my Wheat Belly blog, on Doctored blog. Um, uh, normal, normalized vitamin D blood levels to 60 to 70 nanograms per milliliter. Hmm. Um, uh, optimized thyroid status. That's a whole conversation. And then take basic efforts to cultivate healthy bowel flora. High blood pressure within that setting, Max, is is not non-existent, but it's damn close. Wow. Almost nobody has high blood pressure doing these. It might take, if you're 293 pounds and you should be 160 pounds, it may take a year to reduce blood pressure. But these, and by the way, these supplements are all addressing intrinsic human need. This is not like taking ashwagandha which has no, there's no basic human need for ashwagandha. There's no ashwagandha. I'm not picking on ashwagandha. It's an example of something that, that we have no intrinsic need for. Right. We need magnesium, but we drink filtered water, thereby get no magnesium. We live indoors in cities, wear clothes, getting older. We don't activate D in the skin anymore, so we have to take vitamin D. So we're addressing the intrinsic needs built into the human genetic code. When you do that, that's when blood pressure, the vast majority of people on two, three, four blood pressure medicines, they say, uh, I had to stop them because my blood pressure was 90 and I was getting lightheaded. So it's very uncommon. I can count on one hand number of people who had persistent high blood pressure on this program, on those basic efforts. Um, uh, there's an occasional complication, somebody who has kidney dysfunction or somebody who has some genetic variant, that can happen. But those, it's very uncommon to have persistent high blood pressure in the context of these basic efforts. I feel like many people with high blood pressure go to the, go to see their cardiologist and the, and the first and probably only recommendation recommendation that they get is to cut the salt. What are your feelings <laughs> on, on salt? So as you know, what happens when you cut salt, you worsen insulin resistance. You actually make the situation worse. I'm, I'm, I'm shocked that the American Heart Association has stuck to its advice to restrict sodium intake to 1,500 milligrams per day, even though it's been confidently shown that that increases cardiovascular death. And that's because there's a hormonal compensation when you cut sodium to that degree that includes a rise in adrenaline, rise in cortisol. Um, and other effects, and you actually harm people. There are very rare instances with certain types of disease where people must restrict sodium, but the vast majority of us do not benefit by cutting salt. In fact, I encourage people to use salt, like sea salt, 
uh, and it actually improves insulin resistance. Uh, now, I, I should point this out. When we when people go wheat and grain and sugar free in the first week, I, we have to. I learned this lesson many years ago. We have to encourage people to drink more water and salt their food because people sometimes even pass out from low blood pressure because you lose the sodium retention of high levels of insulin and of the gliadin protein of wheat. So I learned long ago, got to tell people, make sure you drink lots of water and salt your food and even salt your water, just a quick dash of salt, not so it's salty, just a little bit, and you won't be passing out. So we actually have to supplement sodium on this lifestyle because we lost the abnormal sodium retention. And and people will tell me, their leg edema is much better. Their blood pressure is better. They had to stop their, uh, their diuretic and their beta blocker or something like that. Wow, so interesting. I also think salt is just amazing for making bland, healthy food palatable. I mean, you know, <laughs> absolutely. I, I've always been perplexed when people tell me that they don't enjoy vegetables because they don't taste good. And I'm like, you're just you're you probably just grew up in a house where your parents weren't wasn't seasoning them properly. <laughs> right. Throw some some butter or, uh, or and, and salt and garlic on those, you know, Brussels sprouts. You're in for like a whole new universe. Yep, absolutely. It's amazing. Well, we're just about out of time, Dr. Davis. I feel like I could talk to you all day. You're just a wealth of knowledge. Thank you so much for uh, everything that you've shared on this episode. Oh, my pleasure, Max. Yeah. Before we get to the last uh, question that gets asked to everybody, where can listeners connect with you over the Internet? Uh, a good starting place is the uh, Facebook page. There's a Wheat Belly Facebook page. There's an undoctored Facebook page. There's a very, very busy Wheat Belly blog and an undoctored blog. People who want to really dive deep and want to talk about lipoproteins and lipoprotein and ApoE4 and bowel floor and rotary yogurt, we do it in a place called the Undoctored Inner Circle, which is a paid membership site. But a good starting place is the Wheat Belly blog. That's awesome. And Wheat Belly Revised and Expanded just came out. Um it's super great. People should pick it up. It was it was a groundbreaking book, and it continues to be so. Um, yeah, definitely check that out. Uh, all right, Dr. Davis. Well, the last question, take it wherever you'd like. It's more of a philosophical question, but um, can't wait to hear what you have to say. What does it mean to you to live a genius life? You know, it, it means – so if we're talking about this notion of preserving cognitive ability, you know, we can talk about phosphatidylserine. We could talk about – you know, antifungal strategies. But, you know, I, I, I it, it's amazing. It's, it amazes me how much power there is in just getting the basics right. The basics alone. You know, if you and I accept that uh, this is that it's true that dementia uh, and cognitive impairment is really just type three diabetes, that is insulin resistance. This this approach cut out wheat and grains and sugars normalize the nutrients your body needs that affect insulin sensitivity. Just these basic efforts alone, because as you know, it can be very daunting when you embark on a program of maintaining cognitive health. But 90% of the benefits come from just getting the basics right. Get those basics right, get rid of visceral fat, normalize your blood vitamin D, get your omega-3 fatty acid levels up high, eat no grains, have no small LDL particles, normalize postprandial lipoproteins, and then talk about things like you know, uh, all the supplements you might want to talk about are ApoE4 or, or the inflammasome. Basics still count. Oh, yeah. Or, or ashwagandha. You, you really love your ashwagandha. <laughs> right. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you for all that. Um, 
That was amazing. To all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for listening. Make sure to share this episode of the show. Highlight your favorite quote from Dr. Davis or I. Tag us each. We very much appreciate that. Spread the word about what we're doing here at The Genius Life. And I will catch you on the next episode. Peace, guys.